Welcome to episode nine of Stats on Matter. It's coming at you this week. We discuss the start of NFL training camps, Major League Baseball's opening day, zero positive COVID-19 tests for the NBA's bubble, and the MLS's back tournament. You got a new woman soccer franchise set to open in the City of Angels, and they just crowned this year's champion. Our big ticket this week is all about the UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship. We're going to wrap it up this week with, as always, our favorite segment, What's in Our Cup? This week, it's an IPA from Portland, Oregon, and a double IPA from Charlton, Massachusetts that I think is from a place that rhymes with Treehouse. And we 100% appreciate the support you guys are giving for the Stats of Matter podcast. Find us wherever you get your podcast: Google, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, and the World Wide Web. You can find it there, too. And of course, of course find us on social media on Twitter, at Stats Podcast, and on Instagram, at Stats Don't Matter. Let's get into the show. those sports stories that you need to know and uh tim we are so close unbelievably close to getting the full return of sports we already have baseball that's back the doubleheader started last thursday right the first uh two two games yankees versus defending world series nationals and Dodgers versus giants dr anthony fauci threw the first pitch out and it didn't even make it to home base but i'm gonna say it was yeah, probably well, we, well, i mean i don't know throw? if you call it a throw but i mean he was obviously being socially distant from the catcher himself can, can we agree about that he didn't want him to catch anything mm. yeah the memes going around about uh him trying so hard to prevent people from catching things that he threw the pitch uh, the uh, catcher a solid and preventing him from catching anything it ain't wrong uh it's gold um the Yankees Nats game was rained out after seven innings and the Yanks won four to one. Boo. Uh, but before all the games, there was actually a moment of silence. There was a videotape statement for black lives matter. And then the majority of players kneeled uh, for the national anthem. So I think as far as social justices uh, movements are concerned, clearly the MLB is still on track with that, which we are, we are happy about. Uh, anyone who's listened to the podcast knows that's, that's kind of our stance on it. Uh, so it's good to see that. Cardboard fans can be spotted in the stands of many of these games, and it is just as weird as you might think it is. <laughs> yeah, I would almost. So I had a conversation uh, with Tim Kirchin over the weekend, and we kind of discussed it a little bit. And I asked him what his thoughts were, and I have to agree. He sides more with the idea that we should have no auditory enhancements. We should have no cardboard fans. We should literally see it as it is to really drive home what we're going through and not try and hide or disguise some of it. I know Fox broadcasts are actually introducing EA sports style fans in the crowds to kind of help the users at home or the viewers at home stay sort of in the viewing mindset. But I think it sort of starts, you get reminders, obviously we're going to talk about the Marlins in, in just a bit, but you get reminders that it's still a thing, but we should be watching and seeing and absorbing sports as they're being played in the type of environment that they're being played in, not covered up and sort of sugarcoated a little bit. I, I also love the sounds of baseball. So for me, you know, as, as sort of comforting as the sound they're piping in may be, I'm more in the mindset of let me just hear the game. Let's mic up more players. I feel like that would be a great selling point for a lot of these games. But 
Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely uh, not a fan well, of the cardboard I mean, fans. You know, maybe we should purchase some of these cardboard fans, put some stats, some matter T-shirts on them, and the pictures, and we'll we'll see if that if your tune changes a little bit. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays they needed a place to play after Canada said they would not allow them to host sports games in their home stadium. So now they're going to play in Buffalo. That's going to be their home game. Um, good for them, right? We we obviously want to see as many teams participate in the season as possible. And Tim, of course, you know that the Red Sox already had their opening day and they participated too. They started off opening day with a bang. Uh, they won 13 to do 13 to two against the Orioles. And then they inexplicably did not show up for the next three games, which they lost by a combined 11 runs. Uh, two of those losses were versus Baltimore Orioles. So uh, I don't really think it's time to panic because we're five games into the 60 game season, but uh, uh, panic, hmm. panic, it's, it's case panic. panic. Yeah. Um, I knew going into it, the loss of Mookie was going to be pretty big. Um, Erod being, yeah, well, Erod being out, he was scheduled to make his first start, and he missed. Eduardo Rodriguez uh, is currently out for some complications with COVID, actually. So another reminder of how serious this thing actually is. Um, Their pitching has kind of been the big question mark for a while now. I think when you start going into this season where we have – an unexpected new coach out on the field, you know, managing all of the players, trying to juggle some of these uh, up and comers, some of the new additions to the team, and then having to deal with things like uh, Erod being out. Um, I didn't have a lot of expectations going into the season. It's nice to see JD Martinez get off to a hot start. Uh, Bogart's doing well. Also, Ben Attendee's a little bit of a concern. Uh, looked okay in the first game. It kind of fell off pretty quickly shortly thereafter. Um, I think long-term, if this was a regular season, I'd be less concerned. But the fact that that's not the case, uh, it's a you know a literally cut in half. I don't have the highest hopes for the team. I, there, there were some... Obvious highlights of the first round is the most points scored in opening day in franchise history. Avaldi did fantastic. I actually thought the year they won, he should have gotten the uh, World Series MVP for his performance and seem kind of continue on with some of that success, I think is is fantastic. Um, but I think you saw more of the true colors going against a team that the broadcasters themselves called, you know, glorified triple A teams and double A teams. So not, not the best feeling, but we all know how I feel about New England sports right now. And I'm prepared for some of this and um, I'm going to bathe in it. I'm going to soak in it. It's going to suck for a little bit, but uh, I'm, I'm here for it. You know, uh, was it uh facts of life where like the, there would be that that's that scene where there'd be something happening and then the record would scratch and it was like you're probably wondering how we got here that the red sox are going through one of those you're you're probably wondering how they got here moments just two seasons removed from uh a, a marathon game like 18 innings right uh and they they win the series uh, and then here they are their manager's no longer there <laughs> they're dealing with a fine for possibly stealing signals and then they open up with their largest margin of victory on opening day. And then they just get smacked around the next three games. I mean, you can catch anyone, I guess, on a bad day. But you, you bring up a really good point. 
when there's only 60 games, every one of these games really feels like three games. So like you can't really just kind of say, oh, well, that's a throwaway game in the series because you're not really going to have that that game to play again down mm-hmm. the line. You know what I mean? It's it's going to be affecting you a lot more than than I think they're ready to go for. So that that is not good, especially if you're a pitcher. I mean, we're what we're looking at twelve starts for the season. So you come out with a couple bad starts, things aren't looking yeah. great. You don't have a lot of room to make some improvements. Twelve, I mean, that's twelve. That's not even twelve weeks. That's you know, if you do a five day rotation. You could start twice in a week. That's not a lot of time for development. And if you're banged up by a single injury, it's going to set you back even further. Or worse, let's say you end up like the Marlins, whose entire schedule this week was just postponed. Which I don't know how. To, I don't know how you're going to cram in all those games in an already condensed season and have other teams who are willing to be like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll just play some extra baseball a couple weeks. You're not talking about like a couple rain delays. You're talking about entire series that has to be then made up somewhere. Um, between you and me, I don't think that's actually going to happen. I think the season is going to get canned before that happens. It is fitting that the Marlins in Florida during the Florida you know, version of our epidemic uh, is the team that is hit the most and first by this. Um, it's a little bit ironic, but uh, yeah. I think it's just sort of a sign of, of bigger sort of more worrisome things to come if i were a betting man on the baseball season i'm not going all in on the long-term season despite what the despite what manfred said and not being concerned about the longevity yeah and i think the commissioner too i mean there was a there was a call today which some of you may understand uh, i think that's what tim was referencing there the the Miami Marlins are postponing their next six games as they deal with what we would determine to be an outbreak of COVID-19. 17 members of the organization have have tested positive, um, you know, since beginning the season, which promoted the full stop. Now these next six games are be difficult to play anyways, but uh, Tim, as you pointed out, like it's not like they couldn't have foreseen this coming. Right. So when they have an owner's meeting and they say, we have no plans to full stop the season, um, I guess the immediate knee-jerk reaction is, okay, what is the plan? What are we going to do? And uh, the Washington Nationals, for example, they've already voted against going to Miami this weekend following the, the Marlins outbreak. And that was confirmed to Ken Rosenthal and Jeff Passan. And ultimately, the league's going to make the determination. that That's what um, Jeff Passan said. But it's hard to see them going against the will of the players. And if I'm being honest, I don't necessarily think it's a terrible idea. Um we, we talked a few podcasts ago about sports in a bubble, and we kind of laughed about it at the time. But if you're not golf, if you're not uh, NASCAR, and you have to go and you have to play multiple games, the bubble is your best chance of success, right? National Women's Soccer League did it. Major League Soccer's doing it. NBA's doing it. And so far, knock on wood, there haven't been any big things. But yet, the, the Major League Baseball is like, you know what, guys? We see you, and we hear you, but we just don't care. We're going to travel anyways. Even when a country like Canada tells an MLB team, you cannot play here, mm-hmm. MLB just says, oh, we'll, we'll find another place for them to play. Yep. Oh, okay. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of in line with the entire lead up to all of this, where there doesn't seem to be a lot of actual thought put into, I don't know, that's, you know, disingenuous to say because i know they had plenty of meetings and people were you know up all night and i'm sure there were many sleepless nights trying to figure out how this is going to work but it's 
a couple things we need to sort of nip in the bud right away is, you know, the people who might claim that these are all false negatives, I mean, false positive tests, the testing guidelines and restrictions for these things are so in-depth that it's not like you and I going through a drive-through and getting a nasal swab or a throat swab. They go through some pretty strict tests. Uh, and the fact that this many people came back positive, it's a little alarming. Um, you can't trace back where it happened or how it happened. It just now you have to deal with the fact that it did happen. Uh, and then it potentially puts at risk the teams that they played against because even though you kind of separate and you in baseball you tend to have a little bit more space which is why there is some difference between comparing the mlb to the nba there is more space between actual athletes than there are you know 90 percent of the time than there are in the nba in the nba you have two people against each other pretty much the entire game and those people then swap you know as as the play goes on in baseball you worry when someone's rounding the bases uh when someone's at bat they're pretty close but for the most part there's some distant there's some some distance but not in a clubhouse like there's some ideas that were being tossed around like let's not have players report to the clubhouse let's have them uh, get ready in their room some coaches and players are already doing that there getting changed in their room they're showering in their rooms when the game's over they're actually just reporting back to their room sort of putting themselves inside of these bubbles but the problem is they're mobile bubbles you have a lot of places to go and people to interact with between when you check out of your hotel and when you get into your new hotel room so it's not exactly a one-to-one -one comparatively but um i think it's sort of a, a, a bigger sign of the risk that's happening just across the board now like let's say you now have the incubation period is you know anywhere from two to seven days or two to five days um a couple philly players then pop up and they're tested positive now how do you manage that because they have traveled they visited the visiting team's dugouts uh Granted, they postponed those games with the Yankees, so there was no mingling there, but anybody who was in contact with them is now also at risk. And now do you have to start planning for, okay, they were together for this short period of time, and four or five days later, all of these players tested positive. Now do we have to start planning, okay, if a team tests positive, do we then have to quarantine everybody that they were involved with for 14 days just because? And to mitigate the risk or do we roll the dice and say okay well nobody tested positive for the Phillies today what about five days from now do you just treat it as if that was the day that they got it or do you backdate it a week and see and I think what starts to happen is this whole thing is a house of cards and the Marlins they just yanked out like eight cards from the base just to see. And I think if it happens one or two more times to two more teams, I mean, you have an entire team that was pretty much just wiped out. If that happens and two teams test positive, what do you do there? Do you then have to tell the team you played the week prior because of that incubation period? Hey, you guys are probably at risk. Quarantine yourselves or do they carry on? There's so much that's up in the air and to show that how quickly this thing can kind of blow up in our faces is a little alarming. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a little bit in the mantra there that uh, Mike Tyson said, right? Everyone has a plan to get punched in the face. This is the MLB being punched in the face. So they made it a weekend and they already have cases. 
which again, they were probably expecting. I'm sure there's a red line in the sand somewhere where they're going to figure out if they're going to can the season or not. So, you know, the next week or two, we're going to see definitely going on what's going to end up being some of those deciding factors. But Mm -hmm. we do have baseball back. We do have baseball back. So there's that. Tim, the NBA doled out 300-plus coronavirus tests for players in the bubble, and they all tested positive for being negative for COVID-19. Ah, did you see what I did there? Mm-hmm. Ah, see, good news. This is a good news podcast, Tim. Good news only. <laughs> the final day of summer scrimmages is today, Tuesday. Uh, the eight seeding games begin by the time that you probably hear this. And uh, if you've not been a fan of basketball in the bubble, or if you've been a fan of basketball in the bubble, get used to it because it could be around for the next season too. According to a report that was released today from ESPN, the NBA Players Association Executive Director, uh, Michelle Roberts, said returning to a bubble might be the only feasible way for the NBA to complete next season as well. So mm-hmm. I think in the beginning, everyone said, why are you moving to Florida? Why are you putting everyone in a bubble? This is not the way sports could work. And the NBA is already saying, well, we played some scrimmage games and WNBA is down here too. MLS is down here. So far, we seem to be doing okay. So... I mean, you have players who have had to leave the bubble and come back for personal matters like Zion Williamson and Lou Williams, and they've all handled handled their mandatory 10-day quarantine. So as long as you're continuing to follow those rules, you have the bubble. Every time you break the bubble, you, you come out for 10 days completely. There's at least an element of planning there that I think NBA teams can sort of appreciate and you can mm-hmm. you can sort of work through. All right, Tim's got to go to a funeral or Tim Tim has some personal matter he has to take care of. All right, well... Is Tim getting tested every day? No, it's not feasible. Well, great. When Tim comes back, he's sitting out for 10 days. Mm -hmm. Now, does that kind of lessen these eight seeding games? I think so, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're a team like the Clippers, for example, you're down five players anyways, or the the Nets, you know what I mean? You're down a lot. And then like Lou Williams, he's taking all this heat after he stopped at a gentleman's club in Atlanta, known for chicken wings. Like he left the bubble to go to a funeral, and then he went to go get some food. This particular establishment in Atlanta is known for its chicken wings. Uh, Tim, I don't know if you've seen a photo of these chicken wings. They look pretty scrumptious. They, they look, look pretty fantastic. Unbe- unbelievable. And, of course, yeah. since this story is broken now that he was at this gentleman's club, and the only reason anyone knew he was there was because uh, a local rapper took a photo on Instagram with him. So the snitch hotline has not been ringing. It's been the IG hotline. That's the snitch hotline, apparently. Uh, I mean, to, to, be, to be fair – if I were to venture off site and knew I had to uh, do a mandatory quarantine, you bet your ass I would make the most of it uh, because I learned a little bit more about what some of the life is like in the bubble, and it is insanity, right? Um, yeah, I'm sure it's like controlled to a point that these players who have had ultimate freedoms have never experienced yeah. before. So they're they're obviously kind of not about it. However, you're going to a place – you know that it's just opening back up. Uh, you're a star like Lou Williams. Like, get curbside to go. Or if you have these lemon pepper wings, which look delicious, by the way, I'm going to keep saying this until I can find a way to get some without visiting the establishment. <laughs> um, if there was a way to, to get these, I mean, couldn't you have just rented out the whole place? Or when that when that, that, that rapper was like, yo, can I get a picture? You could just say no. Couldn't you? Yeah, but I mean, again, at the end of the day, you're you're subject to the quarantine anyway. So if you're outside the bubble and you have your two days of freedom and you know, you're going to have to answer for them anyway. I mean, do what you can because you're going back in. So these are just some of the things that they have to do on a regular basis. 
they all have bracelets that you have to check in that are Bluetooth controlled. So as you walk to entry point to entry point, you're allowed access based off of test results that you either have or had not done and what the results were of those. So you get your nose swabbed twice a day, you get your temperature taken, and if there's any sort of questionable results, you go to badge in somewhere, you are denied access, but you're also at the same time getting with the results on your phone, so you know if there's maybe a hiccup somewhere, uh, and the whoop bands that kind of follow suit. But these guys are, I don't want to say it's miserable for them because I think the pictures we've all seen, they set them up pretty well for you know being locked away. But at the end of the day, you are locked away from your family, your friends, from anybody that matters. Granted, you are making millions of dollars, so it's pretty easy to say you know suck it up and do what you got to do for that millions of dollars. I think players are willing to do it this season because it's sort of the only way basketball is going to happen and it's a shortened season. But if you expect all of those players to come back for a regular season and live in a bubble for the entire time, you are out of your damn mind. Nobody, nobody, I think, is going to say, you know what? Yep, because the basketball season is so long the only way you would survive that is by having them include your family in the bubble so your wife and kids are there because i can't imagine being away from my family for four to five months uh or they come up with you know i know load management is a big thing in the nba where players purposely take time off so that they're prepared for later in the season if you want to schedule in okay look man you have let's call it 17 days so you have one day of travel one day of visit one day back and then you're quarantined for 14 days um work a few of those into the season if you stretch it any longer than that you're going to be out of player for like a month and a half which oh yeah it's the same as an injury. Uh, I know that there are reserve teams that all of the leagues are introducing for COVID-related functions. Um, but at the end of the day, you can't expect everybody to just give up their lives for what we've already talked about is a game. Right? It's, a, it's a form of entertainment that people get paid a lot of money for, sure. But you can only ask them to give up so much, which I think is – or risk – so much which i think is what you're starting to see spill over into the nfl with you know the patriots being the most notable right now but a growing list of nfl players who are like nah not worth it nfl can't seem to kind of get their stuff in line there's no way to play it without really any risks unless we live in a bubble and i've heard no discussions on a bubble um i don't think there's any way to create the same type of bubble for the nfl as you can for the nba there's just too many players there's 30 guys or more i think there's like 50 if you include coaches and training staff and medical staff and everything for every single team there's just it's just not possible um but yeah i mean if i'm lou williams and i'm out i'm going to a funeral you know clearly i'm down because i just went to an event that's not awesome and i know as soon as i report back i'm going to be in quarantine and i have a, an extra day or two the hell with it i'm getting wings and taking photos is what i mean yeah, I think you really have to shout out the fact that this establishment called Magic City, I mean, in the past few days, there has been a litany of articles written. There have been people that have gone in and gotten these wings specifically uh, and, and wrote about them. And also shout out to Magic City because on the sticker, under the underneath of the Styrofoam uh, box itself, the, the to-go wings come in, 
there's block text around the, the label. And those are the names of men and women that were killed by police brutality. So you're talking about a meal with a message there. And, and that is, that is something pretty powerful. I mean, you already, you already, you already touched on it a little bit, but uh, you know, obviously with sports returning uh, the NFL training camps, all the teams reported uh, as of Monday this week, Houston and Kansas city had reported earlier. Uh, we already know that the New York giants and jets are not going to have fans in their stands at all this season. Baltimore and new England are going to cap their attendance at 14,000 or less. Um, the NFL Players Association and the NFL reach an agreement for testing players, and they're going to play zero preseason games. However, comma, that doesn't affect the fact that there is a growing list of players that are opting out due to coronavirus concerns. Uh, Chiefs guard Duvernay Tardif, right? We got a pretty important person on their team. He's opting out for this season. And then, Tim, look, you said that you were, you were ready for the New England Patriots to lose some games, but I don't think this is how you meant it because they are not losing one, two, three, or four, but six of their players have already opted out. Middle linebacker, Dante Hightower, safety, Patrick Chung, running back, Brandon Bolden, offensive tackle, Marcus Cannon, newer newcomer to the team, uh, fullback, Dan Vitale, and then offensive guard, Najee Turan. Like they're all, they're all sitting out. Three of those guys, at least here, projected starters. That's, that's frightening. Not only are they starters, but several of them have recorded the most snaps second to like Tom Brady and Kyle Van Noy. Um, I'm ready for it. Like I said, I'm here for it. Uh, but I think it's a trend you're going to continue to see as the NFL tends to struggle with how it's going to handle day-to-day uh, -day operations in this sort of environment without working inside of a bubble. Um, the list now is we're close to 30 players, uh, everyone from the Seahawks to the Chiefs to Texans, the Packers, the Cowboys, the Bills, the Ravens, the Vikings, the Washington football team, Panthers, the Bears, the Broncos, the Saints, the Jets, and the Eagles are all currently impacted by players who are out for either unspecified reasons, higher risk, or just voluntary opt-outs. Um, when you start getting players like Dante Hightower, it's going to start resonating with other players because it's it's one of those things that I think everyone is kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And the moment you see some big guys being like, nah, man, it's not, it's not worth it. And I think the scare of the MLB isn't going to do them any favors because they see how quickly it can get out of control. Like 17 players when four days ago, there was no talk of it at all. Although there is some speculation that they knew ahead of time and marched some players out anyway, which is uh, a little bad. deceiving. I don't want to spread rumors Very bad. or conjecture, so I won't. But there is some conversation abound uh, that there is some signs that, that that they knew ahead of time which other sports and other franchises are going to take note of and remember that not everyone's being as honest about who's positive and who's not positive and they're just going out to play whatever sport that they're currently playing so you gotta weigh in like what what's the risk here is this worth it for me even if i have to opt out of some of my salary especially some of these high-profile guys, it's while it may not necessarily be a drop in the bucket, uh, they'll recoup that money somehow, and I'm sure a lot of these teams are going to ultimately end up paying a lot of these guys most of what they would do anyway, just 
to as a PR move as this thing gets more and more out of hand. But I mean, th there are some pretty pretty big names, especially for the Patriots. It's the Patriots are going to be in a really really tough shape going into the season anyway. Uh, this isn't helping at all. Um, the defense is just decimated now. A lot of their top starters are the guys who are, are choosing to, to sit out. Um, but I don't think they're decimated per se. I, I think they're, they're, you know, dare I say it, they're normal, mortal, if you will. Um, but you have players, I, I think uh, Hightower, his wife just had a baby a couple of days ago. Obviously, they're in a high-risk scenario, so props to him. You know what I mean? Like there are there are other players that have come out and said, you know, it's it's more about putting my family first for this time uh, than football. And I mean, if they're opting out for, you know, safety, just their own safety, that they're not medically compromised, they're only making one hundred fifty thousand dollars this season. And if they are at high risk, then they can they can get up to three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Now, for someone who's on like the the rookie minimum, that's a that's a sizable return on whatever contract you would have had this year. But a guy like Hightower, that's like you said, that's a drop. In the yeah, yeah. And I don't necessarily mean decimated in regards to just COVID opt-outs, but off-season moves and things like that. They were kind of in a questionable position going into the season. And then to have Chung and Hightower both opt-out, those are two of your most notable guys. So they're it's not looking great. Not looking great. But I think they're going to sort of set the example. Yeah, and I don't think that, uh, you know, the Pats were going to have to worry that much because if you had a scenario where you don't have a running back or, you know, a couple offensive linemen, you would probably need a quarterback that was mobile, looked like a tight end, could throw. I think his name rhymes with Super Cam Newton. So I think you will be just fine. Nine and seven, here we go. That does bring us to a good point, though. Like, if the MLB is already proving – that uh, travel is going to be an issue. Why don't we just have the NFL in a bubble? I think I think it could work. Do you think it could work? No, like I, I mentioned it a little earlier that I think just the the average number of personnel on any NFL team is just so high that for all the teams to be involved you would have to run out like a portion of a city well you, ha to get you have like the 53 man roster that's active on game day but we already know that there are around 170 to 200 people that are on the field at any time right and those are including your media people your cameras you know coaches players assistants all that that, that doesn't even count any of that so like you're looking at probably two to three hundred people on the field yeah and it's t take that by every team in the league it's it's just unrealistic to expect not only all of those people to live in a bubble um but just where would you fit them all like right now we have what's it called the wide world of sports uh they're playing in a ball wide world of sports how are yep. you going to set up not only football fields where you could run at least three concurrent games all day long but also practice for everybody without having to just scrimmage or see each other the entire time. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not like basketball where you have like five guys you trot out and a couple fill-ins to make sure everybody gets their reps. You have offense, defense, special teams, practice squad. 
the new COVID backup teams that you got, you know, marching around with the replacements who can fill in for a lot of these players who are opting out. I just don't feasibly see in this season setting up a function like that unless you spaced it out over a couple different areas, right? And go with some of the really big like division one colleges yeah. that have really good football programs and practice facilities and things like that. But you would end up ultimately having to divide it up amongst maybe like the top 10 schools and maybe put three teams per school and then, you know, have a couple floaters or, or a couple teams where there's maybe four or you go the NBA route where you just say, okay, the hell with it. Those three teams just don't matter this season. Um, change. You could, and then, you know, modify the schedules yeah, I mean, so that you those could do that. teams maybe in like the Northwest region all play each other, change it up right. a little bit and just say, then, that's, that's my thought on it. You don't need to have a bubble. Have four bubbles for each conference. But do you want to watch? Right, so do you want to watch your team play three other teams for sixteen weeks? Probably not, though. No, 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 I'm not saying you would. I'm not saying you would only play like teams in your division. What I'm saying is, let's let's go ahead and take Seattle. Right, that we're, we're determining. Seattle's where all the NFC West games are going to take place. Cool. So month one, all the all those four games are division games. Month two, anyone that you're playing from another division. So I think this year it's the NFC East. For those next four weeks, those are the only games that are played. NFC West versus NFC East. And then the third, you know, month you you do like, you know, the rest of your division games or whatever have you. So I just find it very difficult to believe, Tim, that a league that is making billions of dollars sees what's going on with the MLB after you have some initial success in the bubble and doesn't come up with some sort of hybrid plan in the middle. Like that, that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me with, with all the players who have definitely got out and they've, they've used social media to their advantage to go ahead and agree to no preseason, right? They brought that to you and they use their leverage <laughs> for that. You agreed on testing protocols and yet we can't figure out what we're going to do here. It doesn't make any sense to me. One of the things I think they could do is follow the lead from the other leagues and maybe cut the season in half. But instead of cutting it in half truly, what you would do is keep it the same 16 weeks, but change it to uh, eight games, but you play every other week. So in between those games, you have pretty much a 14-day quarantine that happens. So you only play every two weeks. So whoever starts week one doesn't play week two will then play week three. You inadvertently have almost a full 14 day stretch where if you or anybody on your team tests positive, you haven't impacted another team and maybe blown up, you know, a portion of the season where like you can't reschedule football games the same way you can reschedule others just because of the way schedules work. Um, both teams get a bye week for that week and you end up with two bye weeks. It's the whole thing's just a little bit of a mess unless they factored in like schedule shifts where your bye week could potentially be used as a makeup day or makeup week for a game you missed. Um, next Thursday games. So it's literally a Sunday to Sunday. Um, and then instead of going somewhere, since there's no 
excuse me, since there's no fans in the stands, I don't know why these teams and leagues are going to places that are super high risk. Take all of the NFL teams and find colleges in the Midwest, like the middle of nowhere, where COVID rates are small because there's not a lot of population, or go to Northern Maine. Like, what? There's so few cases up there because everything is so rural. You could play at, you know, a college like UMaine. There's nobody in the stands anyway, so it doesn't matter how big the capacity is. Uh, you know, there are things that could be done for it. The product would suffer quite a bit. Um, you wouldn't get nearly the same feel or vibe as you would every other season, which gets sort of hidden a little bit in the other leagues because they play so often. And like the uh, NBA is in a bubble, so you, they're playing every game. So you still get to see every game, regardless of whether or not there's fans in the arena or not. Um, if you start cutting down your football to every two weeks, I mean, my personal life would be very thankful for that because I wouldn't be tied to uh, television every Sunday. Um, <laughs> I could pay a lot less attention to fantasy football, but um in an era where the NBA is, or sorry, the NFL is pushing for more games every single season, and they already nixed all of the preseason and all of the money that goes along with that, uh, no, they they won't. That it's already been shown, if by nothing else than the social movement matter, that the only thing driving the NFL is money viewership and just keeping that train rolling so i i think they're going to go full steam ahead into the season and by end of the season i mean the giant brick wall that's going to be waiting very looney tune style into like week four or week five when everything blows up because your players are lying on top of each other every single game and instead of in baseball where the marlins 17 guys get tested but they're spaced out 17 guys pop positive on the Steelers and the opponents that they play, there's zero chance they're not going to get it because they literally just hugged it out for two and a half hours. So, yep, very, very good possibility. That's the way that it goes out. But Tim, I don't. Again, this is a podcast for the people. We we're about the power of positivity here, and I can't talk about the power of positivity in possibly playing football. And I'm accentuating all of those P's. Uh, and this is my last final thought on this. I don't know if you have been near the Twitter sphere in about the past week or so, but Seattle went ahead and swung for the fences. They used a couple bats to do it, but they got safety Jamal Adams from the Jets, and I am here for it. I'm all about it. As a fan, I don't care about the picks that they gave up because, let's be honest, Seattle is a perennial playoff contender, so they're usually picking in the mid to late 20s anyways. So what does that really matter? Um, you get a guy like Adams, Pro Bowl, all pro team captain and Pete Carroll and John Schneider just said, listen, we're, we're going to get back to some sort of semblance of what we know. And that is hard heading safeties out back. And we need one to, to be on the other side of Quandre Diggs. And I, uh, I'm just, I'm so happy about it. I know that a lot of people are saying how much trash he talked to get his way out of there. And there's no jets fans that are like, Oh, I don't really miss Adams that much. Or the fact that no players have been, wishing him well as he comes out West, but uh, don't care about any of that. Just completely happy about the fact that uh, every time Seattle makes a trade for a player like this, right? Percy Harvin, Marshawn Lynch, 
Michael Bennett, Cliff Averill, they've all panned out. So I'm not worried about this in the slightest. I don't care about giving up all the picks because picks like stats don't matter. So <laughs> this is this is my one my one Zen moment where I'm saying go Hawks. And the Jets are gonna jet anyway. They're gonna yeah, they're gonna do anything with those picks. It's it's, it's gonna be a, a dumpster fire yeah. as it always is. Yeah, yeah. Jets are gonna jet. The MLS is back tournament. They're in the round of sixteen. San Jose and LAFC are already on to the next round, and LAFC knocked out the two-time MLS champion Seattle Sounders 4-1 on Monday of this week. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. Uh, Orlando, Philly, Sporting KC, NYCFC are in, and Columbus, Portland, Cincinnati, Minnesota are set to be decided by the time you, you hear this. So I I don't know if you've seen a lot of the MLS games lately. Um, I, I have actually watched it. They're either like early in the morning or late at night. They they do pump in the crowd, and for some of the broadcasts, they are doing the FIFA fans in the stands. Um, I don't I don't mind it. You know, I, I think it's good. Um, obviously, it's like oppressively hot in Florida, so they have to play either at night or in the morning. There's no other way around that. But I think I think the scores are what I would expect them to be for players coming back. And I think when you talk about all these sports coming back, that's a caveat we have we have to talk about. They literally have not been playing organized sports for a long time. So you're going to see kicks that go off the left side. You're going to see pitches that don't make it to the base because they haven't been, they haven't been training. They haven't been doing a lot of that. Right. Uh, but I, I, I'm really kind of excited. I was actually up like late Sunday night watching the, the previous Sounders game. Um, and, I, and I forgot that they were piping in crowd noise because it was actually pretty loud, or at least it felt loud. I mean, it's not quite like going to a, a Seattle Sounders MLS game, but you kind of get the hint there. And the women's equivalent, the National Women's Soccer League, they've already announced a new franchise for the 2022 season. That includes group ownership from, listen to this, Murderer's Row right here. This is this is great. Actress Natalie Portman, tennis god Serena Williams, and soccer heroes Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, and Abby Wambach. They're set to welcome Racing Louisville in 2021 as well. So you have two years of expansion. You have a product where they say, listen, go to Utah, play in the bubble out there. MLS will go to Florida, and so far, so good. The Houston Dash won the Challenge Cup, which started June 27th. They won 2-0 versus Chicago on Sunday of this past week. I haven't heard any overwhelmingly bad COVID news about that. So as far as I see it, American football is back and running. I uh, will be the first to admit I am not the biggest American football fan or football fan in general uh, outside of the U.S. I try every single year I get sucked into the World Cup. Well, well, every time the World Cup comes around, not every year, but I get sucked into the World Cup. I get sucked into some of the early morning Saturday, Sunday championship games uh over in england and europe in general because that's all the sports that are usually on that early in the morning and i i do like watching it um i'm trying really hard to get more uh, mls side of things um fun fact uh we actually may have someone on this very podcast uh in a couple weeks who is from a new mls team Fresh out of Florida, of all places. So they probably won't be go. playing anytime soon. Uh, they're scheduled for the 2021 season. Um, Which is fast coming up, if we're being honest. It right? is. It is. <laughs> it's not exactly so far away. I think MLS, in regards to COVID and how they've managed it, I think it's a lot like the NBA, where the overall 
roster plus supporting staff is small enough that living in a bubble is somewhat feasible. Um, I do like the aggressive approach they take where if anybody is compromised, you were just out. There was no 14 day quarantine. There was like, nope, you are out of this soccer is back tournament. Better luck next time. See you later. And they just kind of continued on. So I can definitely appreciate that side of things. I do think MLS is making a run for more of a staple in sports. Um, I think like baseball, they need to do a little bit more to try and, I mean, baseball, there are plenty of things they can do to sort of speed the game up a little bit or make it more entertaining. Soccer is really for people who either grew up playing soccer or appreciate the sport of soccer, but like the casual fan turning it on and seeing some of these MLS scores, not the best timing for folks just because you know you spend a couple hours watching a game that's nothing nothing um i get i when i do watch it i do get all, all the hate all the hate no I, hate. I hope that i hope that in in two weeks we have this guest on your tune changes a no, million no, no, percent no no, no. You gotta oh me... look at my hat look at my scarf i've been a supporter I'm for a, a long time I'm gonna revolution. You, I, oh yeah i'm gonna let you finish but <laughs> uh no i mean i appreciate it because i grew up playing soccer it's just for me i don't know enough about the dynamics of the game to to watch do i get excited when a team's running down the field yeah do i also know in the back of my mind that 98 percent of the time they're running downfield it's going to get stopped and just the other thing's going to happen the, the other direction uh, so i am pledging to our listeners and to you as my co-host to start watching more mls and most of it I'm going to call homework for our guest who comes on. However, <laughs> uh, I, d I do want to get into it. I know my son loves it. Um, I'm a dad. My son is four years old. He is getting more involved with sports. He loves baseball. We played soccer last season. Um, so we have plenty of reasons to, to start watching more. But for the moment, I will defer MLS knowledge along with a large portion of my users to you, Sam. <laughs> uh, well, you, you got a couple weeks to learn it. I, I do got to say, I, I think as you see all sports going to an MLS game, hearing the supporters singing their chants, getting wild and crazy. Um, I've seen a couple games here in DC at Audi field and there's like smoke and everything that goes on yep. when there's like a, a goal that's scored. And then seeing a game in central league field in Seattle, mm -hmm. the same stadium that the Seahawks play in when the Sounders are out there, they score a goal there's like flames coming out it's like it's incredible there isn't a bad seat in the house and yep. it it really is it really is great obviously post-covid i hope that you know we get a chance to see a game together so we can go ahead and get you a scarf get you a nice flat brand cap and i do feel like i mean i don't know maybe we'll watch like green street hooligans so we can like you know know how to sing songs about kits and everything i do feel like i would be doing our fans an injustice by not mentioning the fact that it is a sport that does rely on on bringing in some retired or almost retired folks from some of the yeah. European teams to That's try and drive some of the entertainment value. And even when they're here, you know, Rooney and those guys, even when they're here, they take time off to go play more important games back home. Um, and they're not acquired and they're not part of the team. They're here on like lease or on loan, but they're still getting paid. 
lots of money. Um, so that's my we are a podcast of the people, and you cannot be giving away free content from a couple weeks in the future. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> gonna get into our big ticket now the ufc the ultimate fighting championship people probably know a lot about this sport it was a sport that started in the mid 90s mid to late 90s in which it was style versus style you had boxers versus wrestlers jujitsu versus karate and then it was kind of you know called a human cockfight which i guess you could really say in the earlier days it was uh but basically when you look at the UFC, which is a sport of mixed martial arts that involves combat techniques, wrestling, old school, you know, karate, jujitsu, other of those disciplines, and you take a look at how it sort of exploded. It's been a long burn, I think, for like the last like 25 years. And I don't think you could ever really have forecasted in the late 90s, you'd have a sport where two men or two women got into a ring and beat the snot out of each other for money, that it would go from a product that was sold to the Fertitta brothers and Dana White for $2 million in January, 2001 that sold in 2016 for $4.025 billion. Now this sports league has gone through domestic violence issues. They've gone through doping issues. They've survived every sort of stalwart league that's attempted to come up in their stead. And I would argue the UFC probably put professional boxing to pasture. And I don't think, that everything that we have going on now with the return of sports during COVID, that we can look past the fact that the UFC said, we are going to purchase an island and we're going to send fighters to a foreign country and they're going to fight there. And by the way, it's going to be streaming. You can't look at the rise of the pay-per-view generation without kind of giving daps to the UFC. And there's just something so incredible about the fact that a sport that was deemed so barbaric years ago is a content machine that literally pumps out three to four events a month. Yeah. It, think, it's, it's unbelievable. I think one of the pinnacles was them signing an agreement with a broadcast company, the size of ESPN for a lot of their ESPN plus content um, that not only offers their pay-per-view, but also does, you know, recaps of their fights and a lot of uh, sort of content around UFC um, anybody who's watched ESPN Plus has seen detail or some of those functions where you had Peyton Manning looking at football film. Uh, you saw, you know, Kobe Bryant analyzing NBA film. Uh, you actually saw was it Daniel Cormier who was reviewing MMA film. So, like, it's it's not only produced regular mainstream content. But you, it produced its own content for a while. You had uh, either on Spike TV or FX, you had the Contender Series, which offered up contracts to whoever won those seasons. So they had their own reality show. There's been lots of things that have sort of spun off of it. Uh, and you're 100% right. In the beginning, it was a cockfight. Um, I was just going back through the catalog for some of the best fights for the heavyweight division. And the first two championship fights 
were actually heavyweights who went in, didn't even have gloves. They literally just beat the hell out of each other, bare-fisted. And for a long time, it was, let's just see who can tackle the other person first and hit him with as many elbows as possible. You could knee and kick people on the ground like in the earlier days. Um, not quite as exaggerated, obviously, as that was, but there, it was essentially... A bar fight. And then when you looked at the heavyweight class, it was a null holds bar, just chaotic. Let's get two guys in a ring and just let him go. Basically, what you wanted out of some of your wrestling that you saw on television where they were you know cutting themselves with hidden razors or purposely putting themselves in harm way to to show a better product. But it was happening in real time and it was basically glorifying extreme violence against each other and it to see where it was and to see where it is now i still think there's some progress that has to be made in terms of making it um i don't know if safer yeah probably a safer sport like i i, I tend to watch more mma now than i ever have some of that is contributed to working at espn and just being around people who are are part of ESPN. Some of it's uh, my colleague who was huge into MMA. Shout out to Matt Tommaso. Uh, he pulled me in, so we would watch whatever the previous days or the previous weekend's card was. We would watch throughout the week. Um, I was fortunate enough to to meet some of the MMA fighters at Asanya. I got to hold his belt for a little while. For a, I felt like a, a, a contender and a winner for all of you know thirty seconds, but. So did did you so you held a belt? I held a belt. What what weight class did you hold a belt? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> which one of the nine weight classes did you think you were in? I was probably, we'll, we'll I, was probably I was we'll probably nice. flirting with uh, with a heavyweight class. Uh, but you you held the light that you held the heavyweight belt for yeah, 10 yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, pictures of it floating around somewhere. I mean, some people's careers, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, watching some of the the recaps, like knockout recaps, I think for me as a, uh, I would still classify myself as more of a, a casual fan, but I think some of the things they need to consider getting rid of is when a, a fighter goes down, just the hammer fist to the face over and over and over again. There's no chance that that's not causing long-term damage. And when you see boxing records that are like, 31 and 8 or 29 and 0 and then you see some of the best records in the MMA uh are like 15 and 1 or 8 and 0 or 9 and 0 it should show you how small that margin is for fighters because they're just I don't think there's any longevity because if you go down, you're literally getting pummeled in the temple until you go to sleep or the referee deems that you can't, uh, you can't defect. You can't defend yourself. Cause right now, if we look at the best winning percentage in the UFC, let's just look at middleweight history. Israel Adesanya is eight. No, Robert Whitaker is nine and one. And then Anderson Silva is 14 and five. It's, I don't think you get a long, lot of longevity out of these fights because of how brutal they are. Um, but even to see the difference between when it started and how polished it is now, it's, you're right, it is staggering the amount of money that they've been able to just produce. I know there's some conversation now with some of their higher profile uh, fighters looking to jump ship, or you have, you know, Conor McGregor retiring, or, um, 
some Masvidal, yeah, won Masvidal coming out and complaining about yep. not getting paid enough. Um, and then, you know, tinfoil had it up a little bit. There's, there's some questionable, questionable things that went on in him taking the fight on short notice with a 20 pound difference, uh, magically on the same weekend that they launched fight Island and the UFC game. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I yeah. I can see it. But I think that I think that you're 100% accurate in the the way they have progressed from day 1 until now has been um very very impressive. It spawned not only other ultimate fighting leagues or combat sports leagues that are very very similar, it's also spawned others like bare knuckle boxing is now making a comeback there's an actual league in the uk i know there's a, a actual professional variation of bare knuckle boxing making a run for it in the u.s because they're making arguments that it's safer um it's just done so much for combat sports uh it is it is pretty staggering to see what they did with such a, a small enterprise to start yeah, I, I think you, you bring up a, the good parallel with uh, wrestling there. Wrestling was all about having what? Stars. <laughs> it didn't matter where you were going. It didn't matter what the what the ring or the arena looked like. It could be the same feel in a 10,000-seat stadium as a 2,200-seat stadium. The stars were always the best. You were going to see Hulk Hogan. You were going to see the Iron Sheik. You were going to see The Rock, right? And the UFC had a dearth of stars. And they were so good at just cultivating through like the contender and the ultimate fighter series, which I'm, I'm pretty sure kept spike TV in, you know, in existence. Um, listen to some of these stars, George St. Pierre, Tito Ortiz, Brock Lesnar, Iceman, Chuck Liddell, Nick Diaz, Nate Diaz, Rich Franklin, Shao Sonnen, Robbie Lawler, BJ Penn, Anderson Silver, Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, Amanda Nunez, Donald Cowboy Cerrone, Uriah Faber, Jose Aldo, Michael Bisping, Frank Muir, Kimbo Slice, rest in peace, Gina Carano, Misha Tate, Holly Holm, Christian Cyborg Santos, like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's always been, and this is one thing the UFC has been really good at, there's always been these stars that come out and they just channel them correctly. <laughs> and then that, that has been why I don't think that fan apathy has ever existed in the UFC. It may have peaked off, it may have plateaued a couple of places, but it's always been on the up and up. Because the UFC is fantastic at selling stories and content. And if you take a look at some of what their finances and expenses were back in the beginning, right? It's, it's kind of mind-blowing just what they spent yep. <laughs> on like fighter pay in the beginning was like 40% of their, their total <laughs> revenue. Now, fast forward to 2016, it's somewhere between 18 to 21%. And that's why a lot of top fighters are like, hey, we want to get paid more. In 2006, the UFC made $180 million total revenue. 48.5% of that was residential pay-per-view. Half, half of it was residential pay-per-view. I think we can all talk about the times where we've gone to a friend's house. They bought the fight car because it was like $60 or $70. No one wanted to pay for all of it. So you go over there, you bring some food and some beers, you'd all chuck in $10, and then that's what you would do. Buffalo Wild Wings makes makes a habit of this, right? Pre-COVID, if you want to come in and watch the fight, you want to sit in the bar section, you had to pay a certain fee in order to sit there and watch mm -hmm. the fights. Um, in 2015, the UFC made $609 million total revenue, okay? And of that expense, fighter compensation was $113 million, which, again, you're thinking one-sixth, pretty much, of, of your revenue. That doesn't sound bad until you take a look at 
content production was almost $100 million and marketing costs, including PR was another 51. So you're spending almost as much on content production as you are on fighter compensation. And I am willing to bet that in the years since it, you know, the UFC was sold for 4.025 billion, that it's probably gone the other way. And we know that there are fighters who believe that they're not making enough money. And obviously the UFC standing pat and saying, well, this is kind of what we're willing to pay. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, 40% of a hundred million dollars and as that increased the payout percentage kind of deflated a little bit and deflated a little bit and deflated a little bit. Now they're 20% of $600 million. That's obviously still more, but it's not a ton more. So it's, it's not like, okay, you don't, you're not looking at your fighters and saying, Hey, you're part of the reason why this is continuing to climb and boom, let's properly compensate. It's like, you're trying to keep them at a set dollar amount, regardless of how much you are continuing to make. Does this mean if, you know, they did a billion and a half next year, would they push them down to 15% because they're, they want to make sure they stay with, within a threshold of whatever their total profits are. And they don't want them dipping into any of that. I think one of the things that that's more unique about the UFC over a lot of other sports is that the UFC tends to output names that tend to be universally recognized, right? I could come out and say Puig, and there are probably a lot of people who might understand who that is. There are going to be a lot of people who have probably never heard of him, even though he was a star for the Dodgers for a long time and is one of the best hitters and is bouncing around teams. So he is in the news. You just don't hear from him often. Bryce Harper is another name that I'm sure a lot of people have heard. More people probably heard about him because of the crazy contract than they, than they did knowing where he actually played from. Trout being one of the best if not the best MLB player of all time. That's another one some people have heard of, some people may not have. But if I say Conor McGregor, universally, the entire world probably knows who that is or a large portion of it. Um, and as sort of the, the you know rooting effect, you probably know who Nick and Nate Diaz are because they are also tied to that. Um, George St. Pierre, Brock Lesnar, a lot of those names who were high-profile folks tend to be more universally recognized that even someone like me who was a casual, even more so of a casual fan and really not even a huge fan of MMA up until maybe three years ago, I could still tell you names like Chuck Liddell, not because I watched a single one of his fights. I just knew the name. I saw him on television. I saw him in commercials and you kind of start connecting the dots. Um, basketball you could probably name one to two players per team unless you were an actual diehard fan and there are probably some teams you couldn't anymore like if i asked anybody who was on the cavaliers i bet nobody could tell me now that lebron james and a lot of the supporting cast all jump ship kevin love maybe because he's you know still out having conversations about mental health and his name gets brought up a lot but it's not the same UFC tends to be a single person promotion squad. So you are as good as your record and you are as good as the UFC is willing to put behind you. Um, I've made this argument several times with some of my complaints and some of the matchmaking that happens in MMA. I think a lot of it's recency biased. Some of it has to do more with gate tickets than actual fights themselves. Um, there's a lot of weird drama that goes on uh, in the MMA that 
smacks a little too much of wrestling for me um conor mcgregor i think is a big culprit of that uh the diaz brothers uh i guess to the point are kind of the same but the guys who are just constantly running the mouth and as soon as the fight's over it's it is what it is and i get it a lot of it's promotion i get it some of it's to sell a fight some of it's to be entertaining but for me it's gotten pretty old um I was never into wrestling one because I knew it, it was fake. Despite the athleticism that was on display, I knew that the storylines and the actual fights themselves were fake. Um, MMA is kind of getting me in that same vein where I'm not buying into the hatred anymore. I'm not buying into the dislike that they're showing each other leading up to every single one of these fights because it just seems disingenuous to buy into it right you had cowboy and mcgregor talking shit the whole time they showed recaps of the the grief they gave each other like previous previous events the fight's over he congratulates cowboy and, and hugs his grandmother and says they loves each other like it's come on like edisania's yeah, that was the. I was gonna say, Edisani is one of those that that doesn't have the drama. He comes in and talks about what he might bring to a fight. He may talk about things that he does better than another fighter, but it's not the drama. You don't have the same nonsense. They just go in, they fight each other. They show some respect leading up to it. They show some respect after. Even even he's like, "I'm gonna destroy you." When the fight's over, it's good fight. Or if it wasn't a good fight. He doesn't hesitate to say, like, well, that was a poor performance. They, you know, didn't do anything that we thought they were going to do. Um, so it doesn't necessarily need to be there. And I think it's to the point where unless you're catering to the, the wrestling community, I don't think it needs to be done anymore. Just boxing doesn't have it to the same extent. And I know you can make the argument that's why boxing is on its way out. There are some, you know, contentious weigh-ins. There are some guys who just don't like each other. But some of that is the same thing like Shakur Stevenson, Shakur Stevenson who is an up and coming top rank fighter he's one of those that I think gets involved with a little too much um, he's grown out of it a little bit seems to be somewhat more respectful he also is uh, you know one of his fights was against his own brother-in-law which is a little crazy but uh <laughs> that's a that's a different conversation but it just seems mma has bought into it a lot more you don't see it much on the undercard you always see it on the main cards you know 100 percent of the time it's just for promotion guys trying to sell gates but i do think they have enough star power in who their stars are and who they're marching out there which is why they survive a lot of these big scandals and controversies that would normally rock other uh, other sports because it's like a one-off scenario like this guy dope so let's get this guy out of here but we have 28 other guys who you would recognize their names for so i think some of that has to be a credit to dana white and some of the development and marketing that's got into it i can kind of understand why they put so much money into that stuff it tends to be you got to spend more to make more um the fighters i think need to get paid more because of what we already talked about the longevity they have in their careers and how short it is because they're literally just kicking the shit out of each other a lot of people say oh, well it's safer than boxing well then why do boxers have longer careers like why why are some mma fighters opting out at younger ages because they you know they come out of the ring with their faces completely mangled or with broken shins and broken bones and like punctured lungs it's 
it's a it's a different sport than it was back then. The fighters are more skilled. The fighters are more dangerous. They're faster. It's just putting it's it's like if you were to put a current MMA fighter in the middleweight division against someone from the '90s, it wouldn't even be close. It would just be you no. Know, the, yeah, it would. The conditioning is better. The skills better. The training's better. All of that stuff is better, and I think a lot of that is what drives the overall upward trend for MMA in general. I do think it's probably bigger than boxing. I don't know. Internationally, boxing is probably still um, a little bit higher. I think. Well, I think uh, MMA is an international sport. I mean, the island is based out of, where is it, Abu Dhabi? or Yeah, so yep. the fighters themselves are from all over the world, but I do think the accessibility to boxing, um, the fact that it is an Olympic event, uh, I do think it still holds the number one spot in combat sports, but I think... MMA is not far behind. It's definitely in the shadow, sort of nipping at the heels of boxing. And unless boxing has some major change that comes up, which Top Rank is doing a great job. Golden Boy Productions, not so much with the, the women's fight he just had with a terrible pairing in a title round that lasted all of seven seconds for two people who never should have been in the same Whew. round. Uh, I think those things continue to be mistakes that... The MMA doesn't make when the MMA has a quick knockout or a quick submission. Um, it's it's usually because someone got completely outclassed, but that deserved to be there. Um, Masvidal yeah. was the only one who I think that was a weird title fight. He looked bad the whole fight. He just looked completely out of condition and out of shape because that's what happens when you lose 20 pounds to go in and fight someone and then try and make up for that in 24 to 48 hours. So um, as far as the overall product goes, I think they've done a fantastic job. They've sucked me in. I couldn't stand it when I first started watching it. And it just kind of skewed me out a little bit watching, you know, somebody elbow somebody in the temple for, two minutes until they either fell asleep or someone decided it was it was game over to where it is now it's much more polished i think the style versus style has kind of subsided and now you just have you know hopefully one of the best against one of the best um or at least someone who could contend to be one of the best um and i think it's interesting to see that mismatch of styles sometime Right, like you see Connor come in as a as more of a stand up boxer who is, you know, laying waste to the division. And then he goes up against someone like Nate Diaz, who's a little bit better, you know, who can take a bunch of hits but is better on the ground, or, you know, and, and squeaks away with a win, and then Connor, you know, tees him up and puts him down in another fight. So that, that comparison is always going to be one of the biggest draws to MMA or even more so when you put Connor and Khabib. Khabib could just completely outclass them. He just, you know, it's like a spider monkey all over him pretty much the entire fight. So that's not something you see in other combat sports. Sure, you have Southpaw versus traditional. You have the old, you know, turtle shell boxing where you kind of closed everything up and, and played defensive. Or Mayweather Jr., who was uh, a defensive boxer uh, who just relied on counter punches the whole time and outscoring you. Um, MMA does a very good job at putting people in a ring regardless of how their styles match up and say okay 
whoever wins wins and it, it, it does make some for some very interesting fights I, I do I, I do agree with you there I, I think that the content that they've been able to hone in the first few years of the sports existence was definitely probably a little rough around the edges but they're so good now in the way that they can they can get fights to to sort yeah. of happen and and with with the exception of Masvidal Usman, you, you don't really have a lot of these guys that jump weight classes for the most part. You do if you know it's going to sell a bunch of uh, pay-per-view and you get some tickets, but um, you really got handed to them. Like for a machine that pays 30% yep. of marketing and content costs, and they only pay their fighters 23%, they're, they're using an extra 7% to their example. Um, to their benefit and they're just continuing to put out more and more content and they're honing the system a little bit more every single time uh, which then of course brings me to my next point have you ever been to a UFC fight? I have fight? not I had an opportunity oh, I, my know, goodness. I had an opportunity to go but potentially go to one last year I don't remember who was on the fight car but I couldn't make it I had already cashed in my weekend away to New York to watch a Lomachenko fight um, mm. so which happened to be on Mother's Day. Shout out to my wife. I love her dearly. Thank you for that and for your understanding. You owe her a yeah, million. Yeah, the fight wasn't even on Mother's Day. Uh, I just spent the entire day in New York afterwards, sort of traveling the city waiting for my train. So shout out to her. But I did not make it. I am still working on that, and I'm hoping to go maybe, you know, once this is all over. Unless, shout out to ESPN, you want to fly me out to Fight Island. and I, I hear they need IT support. <laughs> <laughs> you just gotta take a whole bunch of covid tests that's fine that's fine that's fine yeah you've you've already got some of those i have been to ufc fight actually uh going right back in the memory bank august of 2014 ufc fight night 47 bader versus saint pro that happened at the cross insurance center in bangor maine a ufc fight in bangor maine it was wild 5300 fans and me uh we watched a hometown guy tim botch from uh lincolnville maine shout out to tim he, he won a second round TKO against Brad Tavares after taking a licking in the first round. And I can tell you that being in that small insurance center where usually you see concerts or maybe hockey games, um, you start to feel the air kind of go out of the crowd a little bit. And then Bosch started landing some punches. And every time he did, you could just tell the energy was going right back into the stadium, increasingly yeah. more and more and more. And then he TKO'd that guy and it went, bananas it was wild in there the energy was so crazy and like i will never forget that night he ended he ended up winning like uh, a bonus for a fight of the night because of the way that he ended that which oh crazy but i don't know if you know this dana white is actually from maine i did you not know, know that yeah he's was from today years old when i learned that unbelievable oh okay so we're talking about the fact that they're an entertainment goliath mm -hmm. they're very good at putting fights together. And for the most part, they have longevity that is kind of crazy, right? They've been around for 20 plus years. They've been able to take people's careers and sort of stack them out. Anytime there's ever been turmoil in a weight class, they've always been able to fix it. Think about that one year after Ronda Rousey came out and it was just wrecking everyone. Yep. And then she lost to, was it Misha Tate or Holly uh -huh. Holm? And then, yep. yeah. And then Holly Holm lost. And then who she lost to lost again. So there was like so much turmoil in that division, just like within yep. a year or two. And th if there's any one knock, I guess you could say it's probably the fact that they, a spend a little too much on content production, yep. I think. And B because of the nine weight classes that they have, there's probably too many fights and possibilities. 
what do you think? I about think that? you're correct. I think there's a for me there's a little bit of fatigue where every single weekend is some sort of MMA card, and most of them find a way to like sneak in a title. Um, I think the divisions also need sort of a little bit of a reworking. Um, the first quarter of the divisions are sorry the first third of the divisions are separated by like 10 pounds and then it jumps to a weird like 15 pounds and it goes to like a 25 pound and then a 60 pound jump it's 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 bananas i think they need to introduce a few more divisions in between some of those middle ones because you have a lot of divisions that are just completely stacked uh and then others that you know tend to make a little bit on the undercard um you also tend to have a bottleneck of talent in some of those divisions, like the middleweight, where you have, you know, several guys who are vying for a title and not, it doesn't always seem like the best guy gets the title. It's always a little bit of a popularity contest. There's some, you know, records that kind of go into it. It's almost like college football where it's by committee. And if you have one loss early in your career, that kind of sets you up for like a failure when you're going up against a team who maybe hasn't a, a fighter who maybe won his last five fights. Even if you may have lost your fight, you know, seven fights ago, uh, it's not always necessarily going to set you up for success down the road and then you see the opposite side with guys like conor mcgregor who lost a few fights in a row and is somehow still getting paired up with some some pretty big fights uh that's 100 percent because the way he pulls in money um i do think there still is a lot of uncertainty in how to manage some of these fights there seems to be an awful lot of like call-ups because of injuries and things like that i mean we would be jerks if we didn't mention uh one of the fights from this last weekend's card it's uh i mean sort of on the sort of flip side or sort of in, in line with what you were saying with the holly holmes losing after beating ronda rousey after she beat Ronda Rousey, then went on and, and lost almost right afterwards. You have the flip side of that, where uh, on this weekend's card, um, you had a guy who came in on really, really short notice. Shimaev came in on 11 days rest and won his second fight. So you have a guy who trained for his original fight fought one and then 10 days later was like yeah yeah i got this here let's go ahead and and run it back and do it again and not only did he come out and win he dominated dominated he fought uh mckee and had 40 significant strikes with mckee not even attempting a strike so that went like the first round. Well, I don't think you'd have time to attempt a strike if someone's yeah. landing 20 punches on you. You know what I mean? You're probably just trying to do turtle shell at that point. The, the way too early prediction is already trying to compare him to Khabib because, you know, they have similar beards. Um, mm. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got, he's got a long way to go before he gets to that point. But you, you have a, a lot of constant turnover, and it seems to be at like a weird place where they don't quite know what to do with a lot of their fighters. Um, 
Look, I, I can't imagine that was the only fighter you had available on a 10-day notice. Like, there was nobody else you could have reached out to. Um, you had the Usman fight. You had nobody else you could reach out to other than a guy who had to drop 20 pounds to, to make weight. That one's a little different. That's where I got my little tinfoil hat on because I think there was some maybe marketing where they spent all that money behind that a little bit to get, uh, you know, someone who just came off the Banff title. Um and to be honest, I mean, why are we having a belt that doesn't really truly exist and it's yeah. not tied to a division? That just sounds and reeks to me of wrestling crossover. And I just, yeah. I thought it was, it was cool at the time, but like, come on, there's got to be a better idea than that. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a great sort of marketing deal to get those. And this sort of harkens back to what you were saying about the MMA and their their marketing and sort of their drive. They are finding ways to fill in some of these weekends where there isn't much else going on. Like that, that was one of them. Sure, let's pair it up and and put you know some fake meaning to it. Um, they did say that that belt was just a, a one-timer and didn't really matter, but that'd be like two college football teams getting together and deciding to call it their own bowl game with their own title. Or uh, was it UCF Florida who came up mm -hmm. with their own title when uh, they thought they should have been? Well, I mean, they were undefeated, so you, you I, can't, you can't really take that away from them. I, 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 and I agree. common law opponent, they beat Alabama. So really, I, I, mean, I agree entirely, but it feels very much in that same vein where like you're in by committee and then regardless of what your records are, you're out, but it doesn't matter. They both made up their, their, their championship. So, um, I'm, I'm glad it was a one time only thing. I'm glad it was one and done. I think it's fun when they can manage to do that but i think you have to have very specific characters and and masvidal and diaz are those um i'm a little over if i'm being honest i'm a little over nate diaz's shtick uh i just can't tell if that's really who he is as a person or if he's just that generally unlikable like interviews with him are just the worst uh but i think that might go to say something about how brilliant the UFC is at giving you a star that they package with the content or how bad the, the people who are in that, uh, that episode of their lives, you like have to deal with that, right? Like they have to, they feel like they have to play this up because that's, that's where they were. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you ever watch like Daniel Cormier, like talk trash to someone, you know, it's genuine. It's always been genuine. Yeah. If he hates you, he hates you. If he loves you, he loves you. Like this, this whole kind of flopping back and forth is probably like a, just what happens when when you have a sport that goes around like this long yeah you're naturally gonna have people who are probably gonna go back and forth and they're so good the ufc at like fine-tuning this machine and kind of getting these these content characters out there and in the beginning we're like oh, oh my god we got gsp we got your favor we got cowboy cerrone we got frank Mir. And now we're just like, oh God, okay. Is this another like GSP like think he is? Because this is not the case. But you don't really have that in the women's division because it's it's so small and there's so much like turnover and turmoil. Yep. That those those are really, really interesting fights. But when you brought up like the middleweight division, for example, that's just it's littered with fighters that are ready to go and have their own title shots. And it's just like I feel that we just continue to get those types of events. And you and you gotta hand it to the UFC. They've they've held over five hundred events since they started. Right props to them yeah i mean that's what happens when you pump out 41 a year but i think exactly as you were saying i think we're starting to get characters or characters of actual fans like 
Nate Diaz, uh, he might just, that just might be his personality. Um, I know he's from, he's, he's a very unique guy. The fact that, you know, I know he's a, a full-time vegetarian. Um, I know he's a big advocate for weed. He just made fun of Conor McGregor for posting a retirement photo of him smoking weed. Him and his brother have both been big advocates for it. Um, but just <laughs> listening to the man talk, I'm like, oh, man, like this is you're you're trying too hard and masvidal does it to an extent i know he got his startup and sort of a rough and tumble background with you know fighting in backyards and things like that so he's got more of a humble humble background but then you guys you got guys like colby covington who's constantly out trying to say what he's doing is not an act but it's very hard to watch what he's doing and say and it's not because he's a trump sport it's because it's the whole package like coming out with oh, yeah. the maga hat on every single time and the glasses and like really pushing people's buttons because you know you can there's zero percent chance that that's not some form of an act like you can tell us all day long it's not but people used to tell us wrestling wasn't fake for years and years and years so i i do i do agree with you i i think that, that the entertainment crossover and expansion in the beginning, I mean, yeah. think about it. When the UFC started, right? Yeah. And this is speaking to Covington specifically. We we only check social media once or twice a day. Yep. If that, right? Yep. Now social media is a permanent part of kind of what we do um, with our lives. And then on top of that, there's just like so much content that comes out. Yep. Now we have to give them props. Like the pay-per-view revolution does not occur without the UFC. Boxing had plenty of buys. But the UFC took that idea and kind of put it into the stratosphere. Accordingly, you're going to get guys like McGregor, like Diaz, like Cowboy, like Uriah, Favor, for example, right? Like you're you're going to get those. And Frank Mir and Ronda Rousey to a point, right? You're going to get those people that like it kind of bleeds a little bit from like entertainment into like what away from what it was in the first place, which was two people getting into a cage and, and demonstrating who had the best style of fighting. So Covington, I think it's just a product of where we are right now in social media. And I think where we go in the future, is going to be just the same thing. We're going to see people who want to hang their hats on whatever the, the it thing of the moment is. Um, and I, I guess in a way you can't really fault them for that. It kind of gets their brand out there and, and sort of pushes their star power up. But if you, if you write a lot of checks that your ass can't cash, that's that's where it comes back to bite you, I think. Now, here's a, a fun little stat I just pulled up. Um, as far as the pay-per-view revolution, uh, it is still not even close to boxing, surprisingly enough. Like, look, what? Looking, at 2000, well, what? looking at 2017, for example, let's look at the top earners from, we'll go from 2002 to 2017. 2002 actually we'll skip ahead because we know in the early days of 2002 ufc was still coming up it wasn't until 2009 the lesnar versus murr fight that brought in 1.6 million dollars compared to the pack oh, com okay compared to the pacquiao yeah, I see what you're yeah compared to the pacquiao Cotto fight which was still 1.25 million dollars and then so but it you was, take a look at that that revenue though right and you're taking a look at like the fact that UFC was putting out a ton of content anyways, and boxing happens at like predetermined intervals. So what I mean by when I say the revolution is I'm trying to think like just the fact that like diehard boxing fans are always going to purchase pay-per-view, mm -hmm. but UFC made it chic to buy pay-per-view fights. Yeah. I definitely think the gap is, is closing for sure. I think Mayweather or uh, 
now that Mayweather's retired, he was one of the bigger draws. Uh, Connor was also one of the biggest draws. The Connor Diaz fight was one of the biggest biggest draws to date at least through 2017 it was um 1.65 so no actually it was 1,650,000 buys which is bananas but it's completely eclipsed by the highest rating in boxing and that was in 2015 with Mayweather Pacquiao which was 4.6 million buys so that and I if I recall that fight there was a lot of people who weren't happy with what they got yes so we can yeah there might have been 4.5 million people that bought it but how many of those millions were satisfied customers I, I I'm was just throw that out there I was on my uh I was at my bachelor party at Foxwoods Casino and there you go. midway through, we had walked by a movie theater that was like, hey, guys, we're showing the Mayweather Pacquiao fight, 10 bucks. We're like, uh, yeah. So we bought a couple beers. What year was this? Was this uh, 83? Yeah, right? Close enough. I'm, I'm a very old man. <laughs> um, but no, I think... Uh, I think the gap is definitely closing. I think long term, unless some of these stars really start making moves uh, in MMA, uh, it would have to be like Alvarez being some of the driving force. Um, Lomachenko, I think, is primed. A lot of those top ranked guys, Shakur Triple Steven- G. Yeah, uh, Shakur Stevenson. Um, the heavyweight divisions making its sort of resurgence now with a lot of those guys with Crawford and and um, you know the big three making those moves. I think you're starting to see a little bit more movement there. So it's definitely treading water a little bit. I think it's primed to to make some moves, but I think going back to all the the UFC fighters that you can name, it's just so much that. It, it, it's really tough to compete because boxing doesn't have the same uh, star power or the same skill-based fighters to roll out every single weekend the same way that MMA does. And I think it's just, I think it's a little saturated. I think if MMA were to dial it back a little bit and maybe stack cards a little bit more, uh, they'd probably sell more pay-per-view. The fact that every Saturday you have a couple of free fights and then you have ESPN Plus and then you have the pay-per-view at the end of it, no one's going to just keep shelling out $60 every weekend. If you come up and, okay, it's $60 once a month, sure, sure, I could consider that. I'd take my money. It's cheaper than going to the bars anyway. But um, I do think there's a little bit of a of an oversaturation that's happening. I think you bring up a really good point there. And if we're going to close this to say that the UFC has done a lot of great things, which they have, I mean, they've gone through a, what I would call a pay-per-view revolution, whether they're the top dog, you know, by buys or not. um, I think collectively they probably are. They, they have managed to find a way to churn out content after content after content. And they just continue to take people who really are from small towns and they make them into stars. With the exception of Ronda Rousey, I don't think there's any Olympians that are hiding in, in UFC's you know ranks for the most part. Um, which is not, I mean, it's not bad for the sport to evolve. It's had over 500 events to survive doping scandals, congressional pressure, and so far, COVID-19, right? Like Dana White said, we're going to Fight Island. And we all said, huh? 
Uh, I don't think this is going to work. And it has thus far. So they bought it for $2 million. They turned it into a $4 million subculture, a genre, an archetype, if you will. Um, there's nothing to say that the UFC couldn't go to the Olympics in the future. I don't know how that would work out, but it's certainly plausible. Mm-hmm. Cut down the content and return to kind of what made you famous in the first place, right? Go back in some, to some of those smaller venues. And as you were saying, with the content, don't charge me $60 every time for it. Go ahead. You already have the ESPN like streams anyways. ESPN is a big part of cable packages. Make something really attractive to me. Say, you know what? For $150, six months worth of UFC fights. I think a lot of people would probably take that. So are you trying to get the most money off of these views? Or are you trying to grow the sport and the content even larger? And I think what we've seen is that the UFC probably has the staying power to survive whatever mistake it could possibly make, which I don't think really anything they've done amounts to a mistake because they've just waited it out and kind of rolled through it. So, you know, shout out to Dana White and the Fertitta brothers. I will say on my closing note, the second highest grossing, second highest pay-per-view buy up through 2020 is Floyd Mayweather versus a one Conor McGregor. Did you watch that fight? Uh, yeah, I was better than I was expecting through the first like five rounds, and then I'm, you kind of. I'm not going to say I happen. paid for it. I'm not going to say I paid for it because I didn't. Um, I might have just done the the constant Twitter refresh where someone posts the stream and like the trending topics, and then it gets shut down, and you just watch something else. So I watched a few rounds of it, and then I I looked at the Guardians like uh, round by round comparison, but. Yeah. Uh, Oof, man, I did not see that coming. That was a doozy. Yeah, but that, that was that wasn't bad. Yeah, I don't want to see it again though. Nah, nah. I know Mayweather's talking about it again. He won't do MMA, but he'll fight Connor again. Um, I don't know. Don't know. All righty. So that was a big ticket. We talked about the UFC. Obviously, we hope you guys uh, found that enjoyable. We think uh, that the UFC, you know, has a lot to build off of, and and has got you know a lot a lot further to go. So we appreciate you guys listening. And now. Our favorite part of the show. What's in my cup? All right. This is how we're going to wrap the show up. Episode nine. Stats of matter. It's in the books. But we got to send it out properly, Tim, with a couple beers. What are you drinking this week? So, for those who are not familiar, whale is a terminology used uh, in reference to the beer community to a beer uh a lot like moby dick which is impossible to get uh but worth every effort now this beer uh at one point was considered one of the biggest whales currently available um that's kind of dropped a little bit as the growing ipa community at large has sort of caught up with this particular brewery but this guy juice machine is a double IPA from Treehouse that they do every so often, but is uh, this is the first time I've ever had it, but it's one of few beers on websites like Beer Advocate that is a perfect 100, which doesn't happen all that often. Uh, originally, it was devised and brewed 
to support the very first trip to the Extreme Beer Fest for Treehouse back in 2014. Um, it's been sort of tweaked and brought back a little bit and modified. Uh, it was originally on a 30 barrel system, which is really small for someone like Treehouse to do. It's grown a little bit. Uh, it's made up with Magnum, Columbus, Amarillo, Citra, and Galaxy Hops. Uh, it is literally just a mixture of everything and uh, I couldn't be more excited to try this beer. I know there were some people who will hear this that may roll their eyes because they had this years ago, but um, I don't chase beers quite as much anymore. I try to keep them local just to support the local guys. So this one, it's a good one. I have very green, I have King Julius, and I have whatever the weird naming convention for Alter Ego with all the extra A's in the fridge also. So it was a big decision tonight was going to go away from IPAs until these arrived on my doorstep via the beer stork. Um, but I'm excited to share this with you guys. So you don't chase stats, but you chase beers. I used to be very involved in the beer community as far as trading and whatnot went when I lived in Boston and I had just readily available access to breweries like Trillium and Treehouse. Um, but I think a lot of the smaller breweries have started to catch up with a lot of those. Um, so I don't really do as much chasing. Fox Farm Brewing in Connecticut is one of the best breweries I've ever had. But it's an hour and a half away, so I'm hard-pressed to make a trip out even to there sometimes. Burst, if you ever see it, Burst from Fox Farm Brewing is worth whatever it takes to get your hands on. Double Burst is pretty good, but Burst it tastes like pure candy it is sweet citrusy it's got that pillowy sort of mouthfeel to it all the staples of like a regular new england ipa but it just tastes extra fresh there's something about the way fox farm brews their beers but today is not about fox farm my friend today is about treehouse and this lovely glass of delicious looking juice machine oh, cheers i am drinking Juice Jr., which is an IPA by Great Notion out of Portland, Oregon. Maybe some of you have heard of them. Uh, this is a very rare find for me as well. Um, again, shout out to Unwind at Bellevue. Uh, their beer program is just unbelievable. It's so good. Uh, let's see here. What, is it, what does the side of the can say? With a passion for hops and the patience for sours. And the first time I ever had Great Notion was not in the Pacific Northwest. It was at a beer festival here in Virginia. So I'm hella looking forward to this in cans. Here we go. Cheers, bud. Oh, God damn. That's delicious. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's just something about like a really good beer that hits different at the end of the Stats No Matter podcast. Yeah. And, and if you guys are listening at home and you're not drinking a beer with whatever you like during uh, What's in My Cup, I mean, are you even doing it right? I don't think so. <laughs> I uh, Also, I want to point out that the naming conventions of our beers were completely unplanned. I did not know what I was going to have until a minute before we started this segment. Um, but wow, this is... I mean, Juice Jr. is all mosaic hops, which, I mean, I'm a sucker for. Man. If you, if you told me mosaic hops were in a mousetrap, I'd go to the mousetrap. Uh, that's, that's my favorite hop. Yeah, this one's a good blend. Um, it's very unique in that the mix of hops that they use, a lot of big breweries like this tend to pump out beers that taste almost identical with, like, subtle differences. Um other half monkish and even treehouse to an extent tend to be hot factories where everything they put out is 
you know tastes like a variant of their same product this might be an exception to that this tastes different enough with that blend um that i i think it's one of the best beers that they put out it's a little tangerine in there a little mango some citrusy like grapefruit little i don't know sort of tropical fruit in there it's really really good and it has a nice little sort of hoppy finish that sort of like thick hop taste that if you're a, a beer drinker you know exactly what i mean real quick sam Yes. I want to introduce, because we keep doing this, we talk about the beer, but people aren't really getting a lot of a takeaway from this. So, right now, your sip on the spot, what's your rating? Oh, four and a half. Four and a half? Oh, yeah. I would, I would put this one at probably four and three quarters. Oh. Yeah. It's close to a five for me. I don't know what I would put at a five yet. This is as close as I think I've gotten to that in a long time. Have, have people been asking, like, hey, why aren't you guys, like, doing ratings? Nah, but I, I just thought of this. Like, we're talking about the beer that we're drinking. We're giving them a little rundown of what is in it. And we're giving them, like, a, ah, that's delicious. But what the, what's the takeaway from that? So we're going to start. Ah, right, uh, yeah. From now on, going forward, we're going to give you guys a little bit more of a takeaway, even if it's just in the form of a rating or a comparison to another beer. I would give this one at the top tier of the beers that I've ever had. What am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to run that up? I give this a four and a half, and you're saying some of the top ten beers you ever had. I can't even think of the top ten beers I've ever had. Top, top of my head, top ten. I'm putting the sucker maybe in like top three. If I said top twenty-five, Great Notion is going to disown me, and this is the first beer I'm going to check in. I get back to out of the can. Ooh. You can't do that to me, Smalls. Ooh, if you guys like the sweet sort of pastry stout style, find stacks or full stacks from Great Notion. It literally tastes like a pile of maple syrup covered pancakes in your mouth it's it is pretty awesome well if you're listening to this i mean obviously we've we've gone through nine episodes now so you guys have been with us for over two months and we've been talking about oh, sports coming back sports coming back guys gals sports is coming back okay we've already had a couple sports start their season football players reported we're gonna have hockey coming up we're gonna have more guests coming on we really appreciate all you guys who have stayed the course with us uh, because we're going to get to the full swing and I promise it's going to be less more about what we think you know prognosticating if you will and more about reporting what's happening on the field on the court on the brink